Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Spending Time Podcast. I am joined once again by George Mayer of Govberg and Watchbox. Welcome, George. Happy to be here, Ariel. Thank you for having me back on. So last time we had a conversation about certain watch models, new ones that were very difficult to get in the retail market. Uh, brand new is we mostly talked about Rolex and some Patek Philippe watches. And after that, I did an article about uh, that um, using um, you know some of our our interviews and interviews I've had with a lot of other people. And there was a lot of comments about that on on the article that I wrote about. And uh, I think right now we want to extend that conversation to a slightly different side of the watch market, and that is pre-owned. Now. Pre-owned is something that you deal with in tandem with selling new. What would you say is your split between selling new versus pre-owned watches? That's a good question. Uh, I'll tell you that it's growing in the direction of pre-owned more and more every day. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, I think a lot of people now know, consumers that is, that you know don't do this on a daily basis, that it's become tremendously difficult to get quality new product. Uh, there seems to be a major scarcity when it comes to Rolex stainless steel sports models like you're looking at. So in order for a retailer to grow at this point, you really need to do it through pre-owned. I mean, you're very capped with the amount of inventory you can get new from the various manufacturers. So if you're looking to scale, if you're looking to grow your business, you need to do it through pre-owned. And by, with pre-owned, you can sell to whoever you want, wherever you want, at whatever price. I mean, there are very strict rules and regulations in place when it comes to selling new. Um, you need to be you know, super careful that your watches don't end up somewhere. And, and by that, I mean now with how strong Rolex and Paddock are, I mean, you can't, you can't sell watches at retail to just anybody. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you have these gray market dealers out there that would pay significant premiums over the retail price uh, and then they would end up at auction or on the gray market and you could get in in a lot of trouble with the brands if that happens and trouble with the brands could potentially mean no longer being able to sell their new watches which right now are a pain in the ass to sell because you don't get enough is that correct accurate now I think it's very important for consumers to understand the various players in this ecosystem because it's very easy to blame retailers or blame brands or in general to sort of misunderstand um, the situation now uh, related to buying, you know, watches both new and used. You and I spoke about something interesting, which is, I think, part of the core reason for this, and that is that for whatever reason, most consumers today are focusing on a very narrow assortment of brands. You said five, maybe it's one less or one more, but the bottom line is even though there's dozens and dozens of companies that make excellent timepieces, consumer interest seems to be focusing on a relatively narrow assortment of brands. And we further said that, that those brands that are being focused on are often related to the perceived enduring value after you buy it, meaning you buy a watch new or used, consumers today are more and more interested in what those watches are going to be able to resell for. And I want, I want to talk about that a lot soon, but I want to go back to this idea that you as a retailer have to keep selling every single day. That's, that's what you do. You're a, sa you're a sales company, and in order to keep things going, you have to sell. If you don't have enough product to sell, you have to find some other way 
of getting products to sell. That is your incentives. As a business, there's no way around that. You can't just sit there and be like, well, last month we sold 500 units of X. This month, all we have is three. We're happy. No, you still have 200 units of something that you wanted to sell because you have certain goals. So as a retailer, currently in the market, you're in this very strange and potentially precarious situation sandwiched between the needs and expectations of the companies that make the watches you sell and the needs and expectations of the people that buy the watches you sell. Would you agree? Would you modify that statement? Accurate. Uh, you and I were talking before we went on about how now, I mean, I have to t say no to so many great loyal customers every day. And it's terribly frustrating for me. You have people who have spent a lot of money with me over the course of 10 years and are very loyal, try and always give me a shot or always want to buy a watch through me uh, or send somebody to me before they go to anyone else. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, when I tell people how few watches we get, certain SKUs, they're just astonished. I mean, they can't believe it. Uh, so, and, and the secondary market prices for a lot of these watches are what they are just because the demand far exceeds the supply. But what I'm seeing on a daily basis is people are gravitating towards specific brands, even specific models within a brand. And it's kind of sad. I mean, you were, you, you, know, you were saying the same thing. I wish that people were open to buying more watches. I feel like everyone's chasing the same watch or the same models. And uh, you know, there, there are so many great watches out there from a variety of different brands, but it seems like you, know, you keep hearing the watch industry is so strong. And it is, but it's really just, you know, like we were saying, it's five brands that are doing unbelievably well, better than they ever have. And there are some brands that are some big names that aren't doing that well. And once, you, once you list the brands that in European, Europe, European, in your opinion, are, are doing very well. Rolex and Patekar have never, ever been stronger. Okay. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, I'm happy I got into the business when I did. I got in 2007, so I saw the pre-2008, 2009 financial crisis when mm -hmm. things were crazy. And then I saw when, you know, we were begging for people to buy watches, you know, those, those uh, first couple years after the recession. So I, I, I've been on that side of it, too. And now, you know, uh, I, I, it's crazy to me that Rolex and Patek are as strong as they are, having seen, you know, where the whole industry was, um, you know, not that long ago. Uh, so those two are doing tremendously well. Then you have these other independents that are doing great, like an AP, you know, making 40,000 watches a year. I mean, they're trying to go completely vertical. They've been public about that. You know, they've closed so many retailers. I mean, we're fortunate to be one of the last 10, let's say, in the in the U.S., and, and they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, try and, trying to make it so that within the next four years, they're entirely vertical. I mean, they're just going direct to the consumer. There are no middlemen at all. Yeah. And then you have, you know, Richard Mille and F.P. Journe, smaller independents that are doing tremendous in their own uh, worlds. You know, they don't make nearly as many watches. Uh, when it comes to the group brands, I would say that uh, Omega is probably doing the best out of all of them. I think mm -hmm. that they have really uh, rode the coattails of Rolex, you know, with the brand being so difficult to get, it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, if I can't buy a Rolex, what else can I get? And I think that Omega's in a good spot right now. They make a tr tremendous product that is an incredibly good value, and uh, they've done really well as a result of how difficult it's been to get, uh, to get Rolex. Right, right. Um, I think sort of inherent what you're saying is that there's these five 
brands, and of course it's not every model of these brands by any means, but these brands between them have most of the hot models. And these watches, because they're hot, are not only going for, they're very difficult to get new, but a lot of instances the pre-owned watches are going for a premium. But that doesn't represent the majority of the available inventory out there. So if you were just looking, you know, you divorce yourself from the notion of brand. If you just wanted a great watch from a design, comfort, construction, quality, price level, there is still an enormous variety of excellent options out there for you, but they're, they're represented by watches that aren't as, as hyped right now. Would you agree with that? Totally accurate, I believe. So why do you think that people are gravitating, especially pre-owned, towards these watches that are, are very hyped up? Where, where are they learning about these, these certain models? Or is it just a simple function of consumer psychology that when they hear a model is popular and they hear it's hard to get, they want one as well? It's, it's like the same psychology where you see a bunch of people standing in line for something. You're not even really sure why they're standing in line, but you feel that if other people made the decision to stand in line, you should as well. Right. I think it, and then it perpetuates. I yes. think now you have so many people that have become aware of how difficult it is to get Rolex stainless steel sports models and that, that they are so liquid. I mean, they're basically like another currency right now. I mean, it's insane. You have pretty much every single stainless steel sports model. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but pretty much every single one is trading. And by trading, I mean worth on the secondary market, retail or over, close to it. I mean, that is insane. So, I mean, it wasn't long ago that uh, you could go in and, and get, you know, a Submariner at a discount somewhere. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. And that is now you can't even buy one at retail unless you, you know, it's like very difficult to, uh, you know, you'll have to wait for, for a very long time. And I think that, you know, some people have been turned off by, by how difficult it is to get. I mean, you go into a store and, and you're not an insider. You don't know what's going on in the, in the market. And you want to buy a Submariner GMT as a gift for your son who graduated uh, law school. And you're, you're looked at like you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than being able to buy a luxury good at retail. I mean, like, that's the dynamic. It's, it's bizarre, right? Uh, it, it turns off the consumer. The consumer says, you know what? This isn't the purchasing experience or brand for me. It, it, I think it turns off some people, and then it makes some people want it even more. And... What's interesting now, though, is that it's so difficult to try on the watches. So you want to, you know, try and decide between a Submariner and a GMT. It's not like you can go try the two on side by side and, and see what the difference is between the Glide Lock Clasp and, you know, uh, uh, which one that you think would be a, a better choice for you. And then if you wanted to you know, experiment by going on the pre-owned market, you're having to pay a premium to, to get the watch in some, in some circumstances, in most circumstances. So, so it's, it's very difficult for the consumer. It's difficult for us, the fact of the matter. I mean, we just, you know, I feel like a broken record having to tell good people, uh, you know, over and over again that I can't get them the watches, but it's, it's not on us. It's a, it's a product of the market, right? So, right. So let's let's transition more to a sort of general conversation about pre-owned away from these you know these these few very hot brands and they're great but I think they don't represent the entire picture and I want I want your opinion on something that I've been seeing it seems to me that compared to a few years ago today fewer big companies seem to be gobbling up as much of the pre-owned inventory that is out there as possible 
um, for a variety of reasons. But would you agree that there's a and, and your and your organization is part of it? I'm not saying it's a nefarious thing, but I'm saying there is a there is a there is a real effort to go out there and hold as much of the pre-owned inventory available as possible, as opposed to it sort of floating around, not having a strategy, and being priced all over the place. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? So I'm not sure I fully understand what you're asking. Um, there's a Okay, so there's an effort by a few entities Mm-hmm. to to collect pre-owned inventory. They go out there and they buy closeout. Mm-hmm. They try to buy as many of the units as possible in order to sell them a little bit more slowly but on a more concentrated way. So it's like there is, of course, an effort to sell pre-owned watches, but there's also a major effort to control the inventory. And I see there being... Like I said, uh, uh, an effort by a few entities to control as much of the inventory as pre-owned as possible. Well, I think there are a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to going into the pre-owned space, and you know, it's not like you can just go into it. I mean, if you look at our operation, we have a you know, we bought a sixteen thousand square foot building, and we have a hundred people in a building that isn't even open to the public. I mean, we have thirteen watchmakers and. We, you need to offer a value add to the, to the inventory. So it's not like you can just quick flip, I mean, every single watch. I mean, that would be ideal, right? But right. we take a watch in, we put a new strap on every single one of our pre-owns, you know, if, if we need to. We polish up the watches, we service them if need be, uh, whether it be through the authorized watchmakers that we have in-house or we outsource them, you know, whether it be to like an AP that, you know, we can't get their parts, but we're an authorized retailer, so we'll, we'll send it out, we'll pay for the repair. Uh, we need to have the watches photographed. We need to write descriptions for the watches. We need to do videos of them, you know, done by Tim, who's, uh, you know, a savant and, and uh, explains the watches uh, in great detail, uh, which I think you would agree. So there, there are a lot of different aspects, you know, to, to the engine to get things going. It's not like you just hop in it and then, you know, you're able to sell it. So there is definitely, you know, you need capital, tons of capital, to be able to hold on to the watches and have the time to do every do all of those steps, you know, before uh, offering them for sale. So there is a holding aspect, and also, you know, you, I think we and and several other big players are, in a way, you know, providing liquidity to the market. You know, uh, by you want to make sure that you don't bring the prices down on on the watches, obviously, because you want the the market to be strong. So I think that partially answers what you're looking for, right? Yeah, I mean, you're basically conferring what I'm saying. I mean, without trying to make a conspiracy out of it, I'm trying to paint the picture that my observations are that the, from a consumer perspective, things are not as good right now because there aren't as many deals to have. But it's going to be more and more organized. There's going to be less nonsense to deal with. I see that you know, it, it, your organization does not benefit from the same watch being priced at thousands of dollars difference all over the world. If someone sees a pre-owned Tag Heuer and that they really want on your website and yours looks clean, it's been checked, and da-da-da-da-da, and it looks like a good bet, and then they see what appears to be a similar watch elsewhere doesn't have a lot of the same stuff for like a thousand bucks less, that's not good for pretty much anyone because that, that consumer is just going to sit there and not buy anything. Because the the price gap between those things means that they're going to worry and be like, well, which one is the best bet? One seems more safe. One seems cheaper. The the sale of a pre-owned product 
is benefited just like the sale of a new product with more price consistency. So the less the spread between all the various watches around such that there's a there's a market price that people adhere to um, helps the industry a lot more because it creates it, it removes a lot of the confusion and a lot of the var variety of prices that creates a lot of the problems that we have that we that I think exist now. So for that reason I think that there's an incentive for the market to make sure that as much inventory as possible isn't floating around going for pennies on the dollar on, on eBay. And I think a few years ago, you'll agree that while there was some organization behind selling pre-owned, it was left to the market to deal with it, and it caused a situation where consumers were expecting discounts that were so high it wasn't sustainable for the future. Well, I think there are different segments to the pre-owned market. So when it comes to a ceramic sub-date, there are a lot of different places to get that watch. The market is highly defined and you're going to see very small spreads you know, across the world for, for what that watch is worth. People are aware of what it's worth. But when it comes to a Breguet that was discontinued in 2004 that has no box and papers but was just recently serviced, the, the market's blind. I mean, it's really just what, you know, you think it's worth relative to what else is out there, right? I mean, comparable watches, uh, you know, at that price point or with that complication level. Uh, when it comes to price spreads on certain watches, we we got an FP Journe in today and we it it's going to run us $4,500 to have it serviced and take 12 weeks. So, when somebody's able to buy an FP Journe that's the same model, you know, for uh, $3,000 less and they want to save the $3,000 and they buy that watch and then they need to send it to FP Journe and deal with the aggravation and they're told that they need to spend $4,500 to service it and be without it for 12 weeks, they're going to probably think, man, I wish I had bought it from Watchbox who backs the watch with a 15-month a warranty, you know, authorized by the brand. So. I think there is where we can get a premium, uh, you know, on certain watches because you're 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 buying the seller. I mean, you're you're paying for peace of mind. You're knowing that you're not going to get uh, you know taken advantage of. And I think the fact of the matter is there are a lot of re you know uh, sellers out there that are not able to offer that and stand behind the product like like we can. So when it comes to a, a sub date, that's a rugged watch, you know, easy to service, not overly expensive, and there are a lot of different places where you can buy it, not new, <laughs> coincidentally, <laughs> um, but pre-owned, uh, you know, you're, you're able to get a sense for the market what's a good deal and you can be uh, more, more price sensitive. But, uh, you know, when it comes to a watch where there are three available on the market and you have to deal with imports, you know, if it's coming to and from Europe or wherever it may be, it gets a little bit more complicated. Would you agree that some of the major shift in your organization towards pre-owned is directly related to your inability to sell as much new as you want? A hundred percent. That's entirely, I, like I was saying, I'm glad that we got into it when we did. I wish we could get, you know, endless new product. I wish we could grow with our, you know, the, the tremendous partners that we have. And what, what's happened is we've made, we're making significantly better margin with uh, a lot of the, you know, the premier brands, obviously, because now, I mean, there's not even, you know, when times were tough in, in 2009, I mean, it, nothing was going at retail, let's be real. Um, but now, I mean, every watch from the premier brand is going for retail, more or less. I mean, there are some exceptions, obviously. So 
but we can't get enough of them. So when you do get the product, you're high-fiving when you get it, not when you sell it, because it's already sold, which is crazy. But you know, and, and it's, a, it's a phenomenal annuity. We're so incredibly appreciative to be a partner with a lot of these brands. But you're, you're capped, you can't really grow. I mean, you'd have to buy other retailers that carry the brand to try and get better allocation. So, you know, if you're trying to grow as a business, you, you, you once you pick up, you know, a couple different in, new independents or whatnot, the only way that you can grow, you know, a significant amount is through pre-owned. That's the only, that's where, when the handcuffs come off, it's just an open market. And uh, I think that more and more though, you're seeing more, more watches are, are put into the market every year. They're meant to be able to be uh, restored and last for hundreds of years. And I don't think that the brands are making watches that are tremendously different from those that are already in the market. So it's not like you know everyone's going to gravitate towards the new watches that these brands come out with at, uh, over the course of the year because they're not offering anything that's tremendously different than what they can get added, you know, where, where the depreciation has already been taken into account you know, on the pre-owned market. So, do you think that? Okay, I want to I want to present sort of like a a devil's advocate kind of response, and you'll see what I'm getting at here. I'm looking forward to it. The brands come in, and I'm not, I'm not talking about Rolex and them. They say, "Okay, George, you know what? We can't disagree with anything you're saying, but isn't it your job as a retailer to promote some of these brands that have plenty of inventory, that have great products, but that aren't as in demand? Shouldn't you be creating some of that demand? We try to on a daily basis every day. I, I, you know, it's, it, it's funny. Sometimes you try and sell people out of the premier brands because you know that you can sell the product you know, to, to 10 different people when you only get one watch. So you want to push people into those other brands. So I think that the other brands should benefit from the scarcity of Rolex and Paddock. And I think AP has benefited tremendously, the Royal Oak from the Nautilus being so tough. And I think Omega has benefited tremendously from Rolex being so tough to get, that they have strengthened as a result of, of the scarcity of those two brands. I do think it's interesting, though, that a lot of the other brands haven't. You know, I, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, you know, you would think that a lot of these other, you know, uh, let's call it uh, second tier brands. I mean, because those two, let's be real, are just in their own league, uh, would would be doing better than they are. But I think uh, I, I don't think that's the case. But we would love to put. I mean, look at how many brands we carry, and uh, we have extensive inventory from a lot of the brands that you know there so there are wh- some. Why? I won't name them, but there are some that we have. Uh, you know, 40 watches in stock at all times, and we sell one a month for. And they're good watches. What What is it about that process of getting a consumer in different product, which is more challenging? Because traditionally, that's where the power of the retailer was. You exclusively dominated the relationship with the consumer. They could come in and want one thing, and you could sell them something else. So they could come in and, and, and not have any idea, and you had more freedom to try to understand what they wanted and push them into something. These days... It appears that retailers, even very strong, great ones like your outfit, have trouble doing the actual selling part. You're doing a lot of the fulfillment part. And I'm trying to understand what's different, what's missing, what's removing retailers in general, their ability to actually create demand and and, and then satisfy it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people know what they want before getting to us more than ever. So where you, people used to come in and, and I want to get a nice watch, here's my budget, what can you show me? 
there's so much information on the uh, internet due to tremendous blogs like a blog to watch you know you can become educated on your own and on your own time and you know it's so difficult to see the watches in person that you know it's it, you go into a store you can't try it on anyway so and I think Ariel that the, there are trends going on in the market at large which are the reason why certain brands are so strong and others are not doing as well. And I think those are, you know, to steal uh, a saying from Danny Goffberg, people want beach to tux watches now. I mean, that's, so you have Rolex, they're, they're wearable in all situations. You can wear them on the beach, you can wear them to a black tie event. Nautilus, same thing, Royal Oak, Omegas. So you're seeing more and more people going toward, you know, stainless steel bracelet watches are what is the hottest right now, right? So that, that I think, is, is one of the factors, you know, for, for why uh, the market is what it is. And the other is I see men's case sizes coming down tremendously. And by tremendously, I mean 44 is almost now viewed as too big. Whereas, you know, the 48 millimeter craze I saw where people were, you know, chasing 47 millimeter, 48 millimeter watches, and then, you know, even 44. But I think people want smaller watches these days. So the brands that are doing well are making watches that are stream, extremely wearable in all sorts of different situations, speech and socks, and they're in the 38 to 42 millimeter case size. And when the big watches were super in and trendy, Rolex made a decision to not chase that. You know, the, the Deep Sea is their biggest watch, and, and they decided that they weren't going to go over, over 44 millimeters, and I think uh, it's paid off. I mean, they've always stayed the course. They haven't, changed, they haven't really chased anything or done anything crazy, and because they're so timeless and, frankly, because they're, they're independent and don't have to report to shareholders, they can keep things tight, have the, the demand and supply be in alignment, and the brand equity strong and, and healthy. I think that one of the biggest problems that I see is I, I see where a lot of the demand comes from. You know, I, I'm on the front lines. I see sort of how these conversations get started with consumers. I see how it sort of spirals into larger consumer interest. I, you know, as much as there can be an expert about how this demand is created, I'm, I'm one of them because I see it from behind the scenes. I don't agree with all the types of items that are the recipient of hype. But I do understand how the engine works. And <clears throat> I've said this for years to the brands. The brands who are not receiving this type of attention are doing something wrong. Rolex is doing something right. The brands that are not getting it are actually doing something wrong. And what they're doing wrong is they're avoiding conversations of any kind. They're so, they're, they, they demonstrate so much so on the outside that they have no direction. They don't know what to do. Or they do communicate it's something hokey and weird that they're not creating consumer confidence or they're just not even on the consumer's radars. You know, the average person that likes watches is, you know, searching for them online, reading media, and that means they're subject to all kinds of offers for watches every single week. I would say that the average person that looks at even a small amount of watch media is gives is given dozens of offers every single week between marketing emails and banners and things like that. And they are going to remember those brands that they see messages related to, whether that's advertising or editorial, whatever it is, they're seeing that name over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. if a brand like, you know, we're talking about Blanc Pond, which is a good, a good example. They have some amazing watches. What have they done 
to inject themselves into the conversation from a marketing perspective, from a collector perspective. They have a lot of things to be very, very proud of, and they make some excellent timepieces, yet they spend almost no resources or effort whatsoever to make sure that, that their products are part of the conversation. And when you're not part of the conversation, you simply cannot be considered. And they, no matter what, no matter how many times we tell them that, they still don't seem to care or to know what to do about it. Would you agree or disagree with the overall sentiment of what I'm saying? I would, in large part. I mean, it, it, I think that people just don't know enough about the Blancpain product to buy it. it, it I mean, it, the 50 Fathoms is a phenomenal watch. Uh, you have a, the 1315 movement in there, five-day power reserve. I love how on their uh, complete calendar, it has underlug correctors, so you can do it yourself. You don't need a stylist to, to adjust the, the calendar. They're extremely reliable. That's something that I would say about pretty much all of Swatch Group uh, watches, in the, for the most part, Omega, but they don't break. They're incredibly reliable, you know. Yeah. And that can be said about uh, you know a lot of the other watches that are out there. Um, so, but but people just don't know about the brand. It's not um, it's not sexy when and it and it could be. You know, we're we're yes. partners of theirs, and 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 uh, you know that's a brand I would love to sell more of. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, a lot of people have decided that they, that they want something else. Uh, you know, they don't even really give it a chance. Um, and I think less and less people are going into stores. That is something that we've seen tremendously because, like we said, it's, it's so hard to try on the watches in the store. And, and a lot of the people that help you, the, the consumers know more than the people that are helping them. So a lot of retailers aren't offering a very good in-store experience. So they're going online. And there's, and like you said, you go, you're watching uh, you know, the Ryder Cup. And it's, it's either Rolex or Omega sponsoring the Ryder Cup. You're watching the US Open. And it's, uh, it's Rolex. You're watching the Masters. It's a Rolex commercial. I mean, you're, you're just getting they're, they're people. It's getting ingrained in their head that that's the, that's the brand to have. And uh, you know, they're, they're dwarfing the other, the other brands is what's happening. And there's been consolidation into a few brands like we've said. And a lot of those other, other brands are, are getting, getting squeezed out. So one, one last sort of series of questions, and this goes back to the sort of larger topic of pre-owned that I think is we, we, we tried to keep on as much as possible when we bounced around. Okay, Rolex, Patek, pre-owned, we know we're going to go for a high amount, oftentimes over retail. We understand that. Let's take Blanc Bond for example. There's a watch that you have a pre-owned one on, and it's a great watch, yet you know demand is soft. And you know that if you price it where you want to price it, it's probably not going to sell. So you have two options. You don't sell it at all, or you price it at an amount that you think will it'll move at, but that might cause a little bit of you know eyebrow raising among among you know certain partners. What is what is the strategy there? How do you handle that where you know that it needs to move and you know that it could sell for more? save for the fact that the brand hasn't necessarily marketed properly. What, what happens there? Well, we just try and sell to the market. That's the fact of the matter. If a watch is worth X, it's, it's worth X. Um, you know, there aren't, you know, in some instances, we'll maybe price something what we, which we see is, is above the, the market. But, and more and more now, the market's becoming transparent. So you see these, you know, you go online, you find out you can't get a sub for eighty-five fifty, or you can't get the green sub that retails for nine thousand fifty, and you see them online for twelve thousand, thirteen thousand, and you're like, "Wow, this watch is a great investment." And you go and you see a, a, a Blanc Pond fifty fathoms, and and it and it trades at, you know, a hefty discount off the retail price. It's just the the fact of the matter, and 
it makes you question your purchase of that watch. And more and more now, I was telling you, I have people say, you know, what, what's this worth after I buy it? Like, what would you buy it back for? Um, and uh, I think that that's also the reason why the, the strong brands are as strong as they are and, the, and certain brands aren't doing, you know, nearly as well. I mean, people are very cognizant now of the secondary market value. And somebody's going to have to take a hit in order for somebody to buy a watch at, uh, you know, market value on the secondary market. And that's just the, the, the fact of the matter. So it's, it's, Why are people so afraid of that? These are luxury purchases. Everyone knows that you lose money on luxury purchases. Where did this idea come in that you're somehow like trading like a currency like gold? Not currency, a commodity, you know, like a, like a, a, a precious commodity that's supposed to retain value. Where, I mean, I have theories about it. I'm just sort of like asking you, where did this come from? And don't you agree this is kind of silly? Because this is just basically like funneling people into a very narrow range of watches. And they're not all having a good experience because they're focusing more on resale value than do I actually want to wear this? Right. Yeah, I mean... I don't disagree, but there are a lot of people that we deal with who trade watches on a regular basis. So they want to know, like, listen, I'm fine with losing X amount by buying this watch and having it for six months, but I don't want to lose my shirt. And there are a lot of watches out there that you can lose a lot of money on when you sell them back, uh, you know, substantial money. And it it shouldn't be viewed just as an investment. And, and I am... There are so many nice watches out there where there is a sentimental value to and just the enjoyment of wearing them, you know, and not being concerned about, you know, when when you're going to sell them or for how much. I, I wish more people would do that, but, you know, easier said than done. I mean, people, uh, there has been a shift in the industry towards value retention on top of just the watch and what somebody is going to enjoy. And I do believe that if somebody likes a watch more than, another that holds its value better they still might go with the watch that holds its value better over the one they like more just because you know they they don't know if they're going to hold on to it for forever and you know people for whatever reason it may be you see a lot of people whether it's you know six months down the line or two years down the line or eight years down the line people are getting rid of the watch you know trading it or you know they they Somebody passes away and they give it to their kids and their kids aren't into watches anymore and they want their kids to be able to liquidate the watches easily. Uh, there's you know, a wide variety of different reasons as to why people you know, want to know that uh, there, there is liquid value to what they're putting large amounts of money into. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go on a little bit of a rant here and, here, and, and, and I want to see this as being hopefully a, a thought-provoking end of this conversation. I first want to defend George for a second here because I don't think that anything that he has done or his organization or ones like him have led to this focus on watches as investments. I don't think that 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 I think they've had to be responsive to this type of notion, but I don't think that they're the ones creating it. I don't actually think it it, it helps anyone. So this notion of watches and investments um is complicated. It's something that I'm going to write about more and more, but I want to say to people this. You got to train yourself out of thinking this way. If you're so concerned about spending a certain amount of money on something and want to make sure that you can see a return or you can get your money back, actually invest it. Don't pretend like buying this trophy item to make you feel good about yourself should also be a financial investment. There's a lot of people out there that call themselves collectors that try to speculate 
and buy watches and try to resell them. They're trying to create hype. They're trying to create a little bit of the stock market and all these different types of securities markets and exchanges in the watch industry. And it doesn't apply, and I don't like it, and it's nasty. I totally understand and respect the idea of not wanting to lose money. But the hyper-focus on it has, has distorted and perverted appreciating watches and buying watches. You're supposed to buy the watch after you've paid all your bills, you've done all your investments. These items should not be seen as investments, and the entire notion of investing in them is purely pure psychology. Some of these very, very valuable vintage Rolexes, I'm sorry, comparatively speaking to like Rolexes made today, are pieces of crap. You would not agree that they have so much value outside of this emotion of certain types of collectors out there, like fervently trying to hold on to them and trying to upbid one another. You know, as you said, George, the only reason someone spends thirteen thousand dollars on a pre-owned uh, green Submariner is because they believe that the price will continue to go up. They would never spend that amount of money over retail if they didn't think that it will keep going up. And we know that's not sustainable because Rolex will continue to make more watches, and we're we're in a little bit of a bubble right now. So. It's, it's a difficult conversation because there's a lot of elements to it, and it doesn't always sound fair. But I want to advocate to everyone that, again, buying a watch is supposed to create a personal item on your wrist that makes you happy. It's supposed to reward who you are. And who you are isn't someone who's just hyper-focused and not losing a few pennies. Is that what people want to communicate with their wristwatch wearing experience? No. It's supposed to be your taste, your sophistication, your background, your activity. That's what your watch is supposed to communicate. If you want to communicate something else, walk around and wrap a bunch of CDs you know, uh, tied into little bracelets and wrapped around your wrist. That, if you really want to show that you're, that you're so focused on value retention, you can be a walking investor. If you're into watches, that's something else. And I don't think that these two areas need to be blending with one another because I don't think it's creating a particularly good environment for consumers. And I think there's way too much frustration going on. Uh, anything you would add to that, George? I understand where you're coming from. And the, the thing that makes it complicated is – when you look at a new watch next to a pre-owned watch, and a lot of our watches we restore to the point where they could be represented as new in the sense that if you put a, a one of our pre-owned watches next to a brand new watch, you know, and that pre-owned watch could be five years old, I don't think that people could tell which is which. So when you have to buy a $30,000 watch and, and maybe you can get a little bit of a deal on it, and you know, you can buy it new at you know, 25,000 or whatever it may be, or you can buy a pre-owned one at 15,000 and then get another watch. If you're paying attention to, you know, the, the, the market and you're able to, to buy more watches and get to have, you know, more objects that give you enjoyment and switch them out and you have a variety and collection and get to experiment more with different pieces and you learn what your tastes are more. So, I wouldn't deter people from paying attention to the secondary market value of the watches because the fact of the matter is a lot of new watches, you know, aren't worth close to what the retail price is. So you do want to be cognizant of that unless you know you're going to be wedded to the watch for forever. And you can't always be sure of that. And by being, you know, a savvy buyer or paying attention to it, you're able to buy more and enjoy the the whole hobby more because you know, if you lose 
20,000 on a watch, you're going to be less inclined to buy another. If you lose 5,000, you'd be more more inclined to, to go back in and experiment with another watch until you have watches that are hopefully end up being pieces that you'll never get rid of because you love them so much, right? I mean, that's the, the end goal. I mean, that uh, I have watches now that I would, I would never get rid of, regardless of whether they go up, down, whatever it may be. And it's hard. You have to learn by experimenting. So when you're, when you're experimenting and doing that, you do want to pay attention to, to the secondary market. So, you know, you don't, I think that there has been too much focus on it and people are just buying something because they read on a forum that the, you know, it's a, it's a good investment or a good buy and they won't buy something else just because people say, Oh, you know, it's, I won't buy that because the value retention is not there. I can't, something that bothers me is when you know, there's a, a, a $250,000 watch and it's available for 79.5. And somebody says, oh, well, I won't buy that watch because the brand doesn't hold its value. Well, the depreciation's already been taken out. <laughs> this is the time that you should buy the watch. Because <laughs> the watch at the liquid value, like that doesn't make any sense. Everything holds its value at a certain point, right? So yeah. that, that, that kills me. It's like, oh, this is the time where you could buy the watch that you would never buy new because the depreciation is so significant. So you should buy it even more. You know, you're, some people just put on these blinders, like I'll only buy certain brands. No, 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 pre-owned, that's the great aspect of pre-owned. It allows you to buy watches that you would never buy new because you can get them at such a good price. So, I mean, it's complicated. Excellent points. Everyone, this has been Spending Time. Our guest today has been George Mayer of Govberg and Watchbox. George, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Ariel. Take care.